Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Stuart Hawkins is a multi-award-winning journalist, photographer, TV producer and editor. He's covered assignments on seven continents interviewing power brokers, politicians, cultural icons, leaders, thinkers and financial market movers. He's a former editor of the AFR magazine, South China Morning Post magazine, sophisticated traveller, money, life and leisure, has worked for Bloomberg TV Hong Kong and is currently managing editor of Forbes Australia. Stuart spent the better part of the past decade living in Asia, based in China, and travelling and working in the region from Mumbai to Tokyo. This global career has included working as a journalist educator in Somalia for the BBC World Service Trust and Australia. Adding to his list of talents, Stuart is an accomplished fine art photographer, videographer and curator with numerous exhibitions in Hong Kong and Sydney. A few months ago, as part of his day job, Stuart was granted special access to Bhutan, a small country of 770,000 people located between China and India in the eastern Himalayan region. It's often referred to as one of the happiest nations on the planet despite its economic and societal challenges and in some ways behind the times in terms of lifestyle when it comes to tech, for example. We discussed this in the context of today's show with the title The Politics of Mental Health and Away From Work. I'm really excited to add that he loves polo and we've had a bit of a, you know, trying to schedule this thing around polo tournaments. So um, I really do appreciate your time today, Stuart, on the politics of everything. Amber, thank you very much indeed. And, and I'm really happy to talk about this particular story. It was it was quite a highlight. So thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. So were you one of those people like me that wanted to be a journo from a very young age and kind of knew what you wanted to do? Or did your early career take a different format? No, I, I, I'm like you, absolutely. I I think I spent a lot of time reading Tintin comics um, and Asterix and Obelix as well. I was, a, I was a huge fan, but the possibility of becoming an ancient Gaul or an ancient Roman wasn't exactly um, realistic. So Tintin, I, he, he had this amazing job. He got to travel the world. He had a really cool dog called Snowy and um, he never actually did any work. He never filed a story to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> And I have to say, I know who Tintin is, but there's going to be a whole bunch of people that might not. So do you just want to describe Tintin quickly for us? Very quickly. Belgian comic, um, mid-20th century. Um, he was a, a a skinny English kid. He had a little white dog called Snowy. His best mate was Captain Haddock. And they, <laughs> I love this detail. they went to China, they went to India, Africa, all over the place. I think they even went to the moon at one point. And um, his, the, the conceit of it was that he was a reporter for an English newspaper. But like I said, he actually never filed a story. So I thought that's a great job if you can get it. 
Absolutely. Well, you've obviously uh, made journalism your own and you've got obviously a multiple, um, you know, generational career, but also just, you know, the fact that you're still a bit in journalism despite all its disruptions, hats off to you. So I think it's great that some people are lifelong journalists and that's definitely what your story has been so far. The idea of a gross national happiness index has been around for some time. I've read some stories over many years about this, this concept. How have you come to understand it versus that traditional GDP or gross domestic product figures that I guess wealthy nations like us in Australia, maybe our listeners in the US, Singapore, wherever they may be, would be probably more familiar with? Yeah, good question. Good question. It's it's not as simple as it appears on first viewing. It's a complex idea and it's also open to a lot of interpretation, mainly because it's not an empirical index. It's not like GDP, which is based on consumption expenditure, capital formation, inventories, exports, imports that kind of stuff. It's based on survey data. Um, so that's going to be subjective. You can't rack it up on a spreadsheet. You can't say the numbers, you know, the numbers never lie because it is based on people's feelings, their reactions, their emotions. Now, the important point here is that it's not any less relevant or powerful. Um, it just represents a different way of seeing the world. Um, it tries to take into account people's contentment, their satisfactions, those intangibles that ultimately are very, very valuable and very important to a sense of happiness. Um, the Another thing to note, though, when we're talking about it in the Bhutanese context, is that the it's not that the Bhutanese don't measure GDP. Um, they do, and they're as concerned about it as we are, but they give the happiness index equal weight. So I suppose in the crassest of terms, their mental health index is as important as financial or physical health in that context. It's a, it's an adjunct rather than an, an instead of index. Right. Yeah, no, that does make sense. And I think most people would, would understand what, what you mean by that. In Bhutan, you got the opportunity to sit down with a country's secular leader and a spiritual scholar to explore this dichotomy of that future first activities that I mentioned in the intro, things like accessing technology versus, I guess, those other aspects such as spiritual heart, well-being, all those sorts of terms as well. What was, I guess, in terms of that whole context of those conversations, what surprised you most about what they had to share and why? First up, it was the honesty of both men, the openness of both men. Um, I've spent a lot of time in my life dealing with politicians and in the past 10 years dealing with the, um, well, Australian politicians and dealing with the mainland Chinese government. Now, I'm not putting those two <laughs> groups of people in the same basket, but in terms of, of the, you know, on the full and frank disclosure front, they're, they're actually surprisingly similar. And what I was blown away with was the fact that Dr. Lotte, the Prime Minister, the first thing he said to me was, ask me any question you want. I don't, I, I'm not going to stay on message. I don't, I don't care where this conversation goes. I want you to come away with whatever information you need. And when I spoke to um, uh, Manak Rinpoche, the spiritual leader, it was the same thing. It was just, what do you, what do you want to hear from us? What do, you, what do you need to know from us? And they delivered on that promise, which is, which is pretty extraordinary. So I suppose talking about the, the surprising thing in their message was that, first of all, Dr. Lotte said that he thought that gross national happiness had been misrepresented to a certain extent, that this idea that it was about your emotions, about your um, 
ecstaticness or, or, or you know, enjoyment of life was, was not entirely what it was all about. Um, he said, and, and look, his words were better than mine. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll quote him here. Sure. He said, it's how peaceful you are, how content you are, how settled and how at home you feel wherever you go. How you reason out life, how you want to do more with less. These are values. When you say happiness, it's not just mood. He said, contentment depends on your needs and wants in life, your desire in life. If you don't know how to put a check on your desire in life, you will never be content. And that kind of surprised me because like a lot of Westerners, you know, I went into Bhutan with this kind of Shangri-Lari Type in my mind. Oh, were you were you wearing like you know coloured cloaks and the whole thing? (laughs) No, I being a financial journalist, I had on my boring business suit. Um, But I know I know what you mean. But the but yeah, and so and have the guy. You do disappoint us. I do. I'm that's yeah. I'm good at that. But the um good at being boring. But the the guy was really quite extraordinary. And then talking to the Rinpoche, he he kind of blew me away as well. And I think what was surprising about him was when we were talking about this whole gross national happiness thing was he's saying it's up to you. It's up to the individual. You need to find this within within yourself, that it's not necessarily up to other people to do this for you. You, you needed to, to realise something within yourself that I suppose it's that contentment that Dr Lotto was talking about, that peace and, and how you find that. So it, it was interesting. It, it wasn't so much saying we, the government, we, the religious leader, will tell you how you're going to how you're going to. Yeah, be here's the, here's the path to spiritual here is, enlightenment yes. or whatever is, it might be. Yeah, dictatorial path. No, it's here is the information you need. Absorb it, analyze it, think about it, and work with it within yourself. And I think that that was the surprising message. I think. We know in Australia there's obviously a, a mental health crisis. Many people have called it that. It seems to be never-ending. You know, the statistics on suicide and self-harm are increasing and obviously things like social media, access to technology have a role to play, especially for younger people who, you know, there's just so much content and things on there which they're exposed to. Meanwhile, in Bhutan there's that, I guess, that split desire is my understanding to create and preserve perhaps what they have established in terms of that contentment or happiness, but also, you know, trying to digitise and and move into, I guess, the future or the now, if you like. There's also this kind of brain drain, you know, people, younger people from these countries uh, such as Bhutan are moving to Australia for things like education and economic advantage. But is there some other reason why all of this seems to be happening right now? Like every diaspora, there's, it's, it's not any one thing. Yes, it's for education. Um, Australia has really good schools. We do. It's true. And we've had a very long diplomatic relationship with Bhutan so that the we, we in Australia actually enable Bhutanese students to come here. There, there are um, some quite advantageous immigration policies in that respect. And yes, it's for economic reasons too. Um, the one thing I really need to stress, for all its charm, for the the beauty and the, and the peacefulness and everything of Bhutan, it's a very poor country. It's got a GDP per capita of about 3,200 US dollars a year. Um, I suppose the best way to put it, life is kind there, but it's tough by Western standards. It really is. And once you've been educated and you realise that there's more out there, then there's a, there's a real sense, I think, that people then want to experience that. I mean, if you look at 
Aussie kids. I, I don't know if you did it, but I certainly did. As soon as you get some cash in your pocket, the first thing you do is go offshore. Absolutely. Yeah, I moved to Hong Kong at 21. Yeah, exactly. And you want to experience the other. And I naively, I suppose, as a young man, I was I was in awe of the rest of the world. These, to paraphrase, you know, the, the golden lands of opportunity and adventure. And I spent more than a decade living overseas because I needed and wanted that broader experience. I, I, I craved that excitement and craved that that broader picture, that worldly view. And I don't think Bhutanese kids are any different. And in a way, given the Buddhist teaching that they receive and that outward-looking process, I think they their reasons for looking outward are almost more compelling than ours. But, I mean, also, the material wealth is not in Bhutan and they want cars, washing machines, computers and everything else. Not unreasonable, right? Not I unreasonable. mean... Yeah. And Dr. Latte himself said that that was perfectly reasonable. It's a legitimate human need. He, the caveat with him, or not so much the caveat, but the desire from him was he hopes that they come back mm. after making money somewhere else. They'll come back to Bhutan and spread the wealth around a bit. Which but, has happened, you know, examples like within China and so forth, you know, students have come here and traditionally, you know, often have gone back, not always, but, you know, I guess that's often the hope initially when those kinds of exchanges are happening. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely correct. And I hope it will happen because, like I said, Bhutan is is an amazing place. And for that culture to be lost, to be absorbed into ours, and I'm not saying our culture is wrong by any stretch of the imagination. I am a product of that culture and I'm very proud of it. But I think the Bhutanese have something very special to give. And I would hate to see that lost. Going back to this index, the gross national happiness as a concept was in, introduced in around 2008, is my understanding. Correct. It's an index based on survey data, technically multidimensional poverty index according to the Asian Development Bank. Statistics are compiled under the sort of nine domains, so broadly speaking, living standards, health, education, environment, community, time use, psychological wellbeing, governance and culture. Do you think that's benefited the way which we are viewing Bhutan? Like obviously you've been there and you've had your experience, but from the outside obviously you can probably put that a bit on a pedestal and even with the economic disadvantage go, well, why? And you've alluded to the contentment piece, but I suppose was that something that was always the case or do you think that's kind of been highlighted because we now have this framework around it? We as Westerners and particularly as Western journalists, we love our headlines. We love our quick 30-second grabs. And the 30-second grab on Bhutan is it's Shangri-La, as we said before. It's carbon negative. When you visit, everyone's friendly and nice. Even the food's good. Um, There is a much more nuanced and complex story. The lived reality is different to the travel brochures by a, a very long way it, it is it's really hard to make a buck in Bhutan it's hard to day-to-day feed your kids not that they don't have school fees but that's that's um more complex but it's it's you're not going to amass personal wealth in that country they have political problems there are issues with the Chinese and the Indians who border the country Dr. Lotte was reticent to talk about that, but there are tensions there. Um, he was trying to, t- to talk them down. Um, 
but they, they do exist. There's also the issue of political prisoners, which has been going on for at least three decades. Yeah, we can't overlook these sorts of we things, can, can we? We cannot. You absolutely cannot. I don't want to talk about them in detail because I'm not backgrounded on them. And yeah. I don't want to do anybody in uh, a disservice. But these issues are there. It's not perfect. It's not, not by any stretch of the imagination. They are human. Having said that, though, life there is kind. And they do not have significant crime. They don't have a lot of the problems that we have. And I think it can be a double-edged sword. And I think that for us to see Bhutan as the happiness kingdom is all very well and good. And it's a great headline and it's brilliant. It's a great soundbite, isn't it? I mean, it absolutely. just simplifies things, really. Absolutely. And to a certain extent, it's true. But it is nuanced. It is absolutely nuanced. There are problems there. It's not Shangri-La. But on the scale of other Himalayan kingdoms that I have been to, in Nepal, um, Tibet, the Indian Himalaya, it's a much happier place. i I, I got to take Yeah, that you've course. got a comparative uh, experience from there. Look, obviously neither you or I are a psychologist by training, so we just want to give that caveat before we get stuck into this. But, you know, men- mental health, if that was something that was part of our measures, whether that be, I don't know, part of our GDP or other, you know, economic and and wellbeing frameworks. I wonder what it might mean we might do differently in, say, Australia or the UK or other countries as well from your perspective to be more sustainably happy or content. Is there, I think there's this kind of these conversations around it. I'm seeing a lot of stuff at the moment um, being written about, you know, different measures of of wealth, if you like, um, other than what's in your bank account. But I suppose it does seem a little bit woke and not necessarily mainstream, but it could be something we could look at perhaps. I was wondering to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is a really tricky one, Amber, really, really tricky one. Um, I'm glad you said you know, neither of us are trained mental health professionals. You know, we're not. No, no corridor counselling for me, sorry. No, absolutely not. Um, but, okay, and I must stress this is a personal opinion, honestly. Absolutely. And that's what I'm asking for, I guess, yeah. in this question. No, no dramas at all. But I don't know whether Australians, on the whole, actually want to change the status quo. I could be absolutely wrong, but we're rich, we're very rich, on a global uh, level, on a, on a global comparison, we complain and we moan a lot, but we have pretty much more material wealth than any other group of people on the planet. However, having said that, we're not happy. And as a Spanish friend pointed out to me um, a while ago, he said, look, Australians are really, they're really happy to be friendly. They're amazingly friendly and they have a, have a global reputation for it. But he found it very difficult to build a real friendship when he was here. He says that they, they're friendly, but they don't open their hearts. They don't. They don't mm, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I, I thought about that and I thought, well, dude, you know. <laughs> she got a bit defensive there, Stuart. I got a bit defensive there. <laughs> I thought, no, you know, I, I'm not like that. I, I, I consider that I wear my heart on my sleeve. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, you do. Yes, you personally. But, and then I started thinking about it. I thought, yeah, you, you know, you're actually not wrong. You know, I don't think you're 100% right, but you're not wrong in, in a certain in a certain level of, of um, social interaction that goes on here. Um, I suppose maybe maybe if we swing back to the guy who actually does know about this stuff, Peter Baldwin. Now he, he's a policy guy with the Sydney's with Sydney's Black Dog Institute, and I spoke to him as part of the article as well. And he's pushing the Australian government to be much, much, much more proactive in adding measures that 
um, look at our psychological needs, working out policy that might help and fix it. But his, his thing was inequity, inequality. He said that it's, you know, it's one thing to say we're the richest people on the planet. We are by a number of measures, but that wealth is not necessarily distributed, distributed equally. So while there's a, a, a kind of a subset of Australians that are the, what, what, what was that expression these a few years back, the worried well, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of us who wow. are actually doing it bloody tough. Yeah. And that was where he was coming from. He, he I don't know, look, again, if, I, if I'm going to. It is really tricky. I guess what I'm trying to understand is, you know, just to take away from, you know, what, you, what you've learned, like how we could be. I, I agree with you. I find it baffling and I'm probably all part of that, you know, bourgeois kind of elite where like, you, you know, you're like sometimes you're really stressed and worried and don't feel that happy and you've got more stuff than your parents had. There's more everything, more travel. What just, you know, and one years ago I had a business mentor say to me, the hardest word in the English language is enough. When is it enough? Enough cars, enough boats, enough money. Like it's not enough and that's where you have to look at yourself. So just to kind of think about how we can recalibrate, I guess, what we see yeah, as success yeah. even. Can I make a, a, a really quick point on that? I, sure. This, this is a personal observation. But I think having spent a lot of time with the um, that Mahayana Buddhist philosophy, that we as Australians have it's a little bit of a vacuum when it comes to examining and understanding ourselves. I don't think we like particularly. We're not comfortable with it, I don't no, think. No, we, we, we don't like delving into our hearts. You know, we'd rather watch footy. Um, I know that's a generalisation. It's a terrible generalisation. but Apollo, you know, depends Apollo. on your thing. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. Anyway, but, you know, but I think we also don't tend to separate our wants from our needs. I think there's a sense of entitlement in us. Yeah. We, I deserve. I should have. You know, and, and I just, I'm just wondering, thinking out loud, whether we're not taking enough responsibility for ourselves and for our own happiness. Yeah, absolutely. We can just leave that dangling in the air for the audience to to marinate on as I move into our next question. Sure, no worries. And we've seen a massive decline in the past few decades, obviously, things like organised religion and church memberships, which I've, even within sort of some of the um, corporate comms work I do, you know, a lot of leaders will talk about the fact that the sense of belonging is workplaces now and career and all that sort of stuff became the new church, if you like, in the past 20 years. It's a lot of our identity as, as Australians and a lot of people in Western society would be similar. Obviously, the Bhutanese are largely Buddhist, is my understanding, and the Dalai Lama espouses that the prime purpose in life is to help others. So, I think there's a, it's kind of a hard one because we've talked about the sense of responsibility as an individual to be content, if you like, it's all on you. But at the same time, I do sometimes feel like community-mindedness and being outward-looking actually creates, I know for me personally, a sense of more inner happiness and purpose than winning a million business awards or, you know, growing, growing my business and having money in the bank sometimes. Is it too simplistic to think that that could help us? I mean, what's your view on that? I'm, Without wanting to be religious about it, like it's not about where you belong religiously, but just the yeah. idea of what we define as, I guess, our purpose and we seek contentment from. Absolutely. And just as a, as a point of clarification, Buddhism is non-theistic, so it's, it's a philosophy rather than a religion, but I, I do understand what you're saying. And again, full and frank disclosure, I've met the Dalai Lama twice in my life, both times. Hilarious. Who haven't you met? <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> That's another podcast. Um, but in a professional capacity as a journo, it wasn't yeah. uh, It wasn't a teaching thing. And, look, he's an incredible guy. He's amazing. 
Um, the but that his or that philosophy that he espouses time you know again and again and again and again that the purpose of your life is to relieve the suffering of others. It's the very core of Mahayana Buddhism, or very core of the teaching, and on the um, and what uh, gross national happiness is based on too. Mm. So I suppose the theory is that once you let go of that daily grind, and it is a grind of pandering to your own needs and your own self-interest, look outside yourself. It's actually incredibly liberating. I agree. I I just think there's just so much to be said for that. And that's sort of, I've touched on it recently in in another episode of the Politics of Everything um, with a writer listening to Holdforth has written this whole thing about, you know, our individualism, our ideology kind of failing us for the 21st century virtues and this whole idea of my truth and how I feel and my individual rights have kind of overtaken and, you know, it's not going to solve climate change if we just worry about individual rights, for example, or some of the big stuff that we're facing in the next generation or now. So I think I've just been marinating this idea for a while that, yeah, sometimes it's about the other. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it is the, the, what I struggle with, because I, and I struggle with it on a daily, the daily basis, is that you, I understand the theory that if I open myself to others and, and I put others first all the time, then I'm going to be happier. But your, that, that ego, that sort of self-grasping overtakes it so quickly and so rapidly it's, it's part of our human condition i suppose so that that is the struggle but i've had glimpses of it that that peace that emotional quiescence um if i can use that expression and then when you when you when you feel a bit of that and it's oh yeah actually this is really liberating this is really peaceful this is good so yeah it's it's a it's a difficult concept but but i think a really important one Changing tack a bit, I have a few questions I ask all my guests, including the opening question and, and now our final few questions. What, Stuart, has been the best piece of advice? It doesn't have to be work-related, but just life advice even that you've been given and why has it really stuck with you? Yes, this, it was more, it was a bit tangential. It was a teaching. Um, I was in my 30s. I was climbing in the Himalayas. Um, my life in Australia had gotten a bit messy, uh, well, a lot messy, so I needed to run away for a bit. And I was lucky enough to be invited for some teaching with a chap by the name of Geshe Yama, who he escaped with the, or at around about the same time as the Dalai Lama back in 1959. And I said to him at the end of the teaching, look, can you give me a, a, a blessing to keep me safe? Um, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I thought, Okay, happy days. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a pretty big rejection there, isn't it? Thanks, okay, Al, great. That's, that's nice. He goes, no, I'll give you a long life blessing. Thought, okay, yeah, all right, all that'll do it, I suppose. And it took me years to work out what he was, what he was getting at with this. And I think, again, this is tied up in a, in a fair amount of Buddhist philosophy, but he was willing me the time to live out my karma, to live out my suffering, to live out my samsara in the hopes that I would gain some insight into it. Now, it was, a, it was a fairly kind of hardcore thing, but at the end of the day, the message was acceptance, understand that shit happens, most of it's your fault, so fix what you can, accept what you can't. But the good stuff happens too, and most of that yeah. comes from you too, so accept that as well. That's great. I like that. 
If we spoke again in a year's time, do you have a goal um, that you'd like to share with us today? I'll, I'll probably never circle back and ask you, Stuart, so there's no real accountability, but I'd just like people to have something forward-focused to share with our listeners. Okay, well, the facile answer is um, upping my polo handicap. Um, <laughs> That's a good goal. Well, that is a great goal. But look, I have been reading the Mahamudra, which is the great seal. It's a, a teaching, a, a sutra, and it teaches the essence of mind, and it's bloody complicated it's all about the emptiness of all things and it's it is really hardcore stuff but if i can achieve just a glimmer of understanding of that text then i reckon i'd be a much less grumpy old man excellent and just a final takeaway message for us on our topic of the politics of mental health perhaps you know sewing up i guess some of our conversation and just a final thought to leave us with today okay um being honest what I've learned from my life the tragedies, the violence, the joys, and the great loves, and there have been many, is that everybody's lived experience is different. Um, So again, the most important thing is compassion. Understand that people are in pain, but don't try and analyze too much why. I think be there for them, help them, and if you can do that, that is the path to liberation, um, to freedom, and to peace. Thanks, Stuart. It's been a great conversation. If you do want to connect with Stuart on LinkedIn, I've sent some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.